0: We're in Isaiah chapter 42 this morning. Walking on out. If you, if you need um, a Bible, there are Bibles in the shelves uh, the, the shelves in front of you. Uh, again, we are in Isaiah chapter 42, and we are in a, a specific section of Isaiah that talks about the coming Messiah. Uh, it talks about the, the servant that will come, and we actually have this, this idea that just kind of slaps us in the face in, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, where it says, behold, There's this idea of, Behold the one who is to come. Behold my servant whom I uphold. Well, I'll just go ahead and read it all. Uh, But here's some themes I want you to look at as we read all the way through Isaiah chapter 42. I want you to see the theme of the disposition of Jesus. Who he is, how he acted in terms of his gentleness and his caring, and just who he was, uh, this coming one. And again, we know that this is about Jesus because Matthew chapter 12 tells us that this is the coming servant. So we, we have, um, when we see it, an Old Testament text referred to in the New Testament, New Testament, we have sort of more light shined upon this Old Testament text. So the disposition of Jesus. I also want you to see how many times we see the word nations or coastlands throughout this section, which means that this promised Messiah, this promised one is actually meant to come and actually help um, bring about your know, salvation to the nations, not just to the people of Judah. And then lastly, um, I want you to see and, he, and think about this. What does the idea of blindness and deafness mean in the midst of what we're talking about in Isaiah 42? It, it, it specifically means a spiritual blindness and a spiritual brokenness. So those ideas, who is Jesus? The disposition of the servant, referred to in Isaiah 42... I also want you to see how many times the word nations and coastlands are used. And then I also want you to see uh, the idea of blind and deaf. So, having said all that, you may remain seated for this because it is um, a fairly lengthy passage of Isaiah chapter 42 as we work our way through the book of Isaiah. So, hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth Justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heaven and the stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. In spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will keep you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants, let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetations. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, and blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake, to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, and whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, just a word of note um, Isaiah 42 is so rich. It is such a rich passage of scripture that speak to, speaks to us about Jesus, speaks to us about the gospel going out to the nations. It speaks to us about the blindness and deafness of those who should know better. And, and I will not, t- I, and I have to tell you, that I cannot do justice to all of Isaiah 42 in one week. And yet, you know, at the same time, um, James Barrett asked me, he said, George, what are we going to do next when we finish Isaiah? And I'm like, I don't know if we're ever going to get out of Isaiah. <laughs> like We've been doing it for a long time, right? And I said, so, you know, I'm only going to hit a few things. We could, we could have many sermons in Isaiah chapter 42, but, but let me begin uh, by saying this uh, by way of just a point. Look at the gentleness of Jesus and how it works itself out. This is talking about Jesus, and, 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 it, and he's in contrast to this King Cyrus of the Persians who would come. Now, if you look back in Isaiah chapter 41, um, what, what we, you see is that King Cyrus will come, and, and God is raising up Cyrus, the, the, the Persian leader, to come in, and he will overwhelm the Babylonians, and he will release the people out of you know, captivity in Babylon, and he will lead them into the promised land. And that's God raising up a, a man-made leader, a foreign leader, and this is this leader, and this is what it says about him in Isaiah forty-one twenty-five. last week. I stirred up one from the north, meaning Cyrus, We see his name other places in Isaiah. And he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. And really what we see is that Cyrus will come, and people will fear him. People will fear and and be subjugated by him, but the Lord is raising him up for his own purposes. But in contrast to him, we see one that says in verse 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Now, this is one of four different places in Isaiah known as the servant songs of Isaiah that display and talk about Jesus. Now, we hear about the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 42, we read about a bruised reed he will not break, a a smoldering flax he will no way snuff out. And we also read about it in Isaiah chapter 49 and also in Isaiah chapter 50. These are four servant songs of, of Isaiah speaking about Jesus. But look at the disposition of Jesus. First of all, It says, Behold, he will come, and you will be amazed at his coming. I will uphold my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Now that's the idea of the Holy Spirit being upon him. We read about that in the Gospels where the spirit descended upon him at his baptism like a dove. And look at what it says in verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Jesus is not brash. He is not arrogant. He is not prideful. He is not about his own glory, but rather he is about the Father's glory. You see, Cyrus and some of the man-made leaders, they're all about me, because they would say, yeah, I am the man, follow me. But Jesus says, no, I want you to follow me so that you can be reconciled to the Father. And when we look at him, there's, there's this quietness to Jesus. Like a bruised reed he will not break. Now, a bruised reed, I mean, that, that signifies something that is about to be broken, Something that is right on the edge of being just snapped off in two. Or a faintly burning wick he will not quench. There's this idea, again, we don't have candles except at birthdays now. But we know that you know, when, when we light a candle and it's just barely going, it's just, it's, is it going to go? Is it not going to go? You know, do we have to light it again? You know, you know this, like when you're trying to light all the different birthday candles for your children and everybody's excited and moms want to get pictures and you're trying to do it and you got wax dripping and you got all these other things going on. And you're like, is that one going to take? And what it says is that Jesus will not quench. He will not quench this faintly burning wick. And, and that's, that's helpful for us to know. But it's also this idea that in the midst of this, Jesus brings justice through his kindness and through his gentleness. And just to think about Jesus in this way, to think about, you know, many of you are, are broken in the midst of the situations that you're in with relationships that might be bad or situations that might be very difficult. And, and some of those situations that have arisen in your life are your fault, right? Right? Like, I mean, when you look, in, you look around accountability, I mean, sometimes you've got to go to the mirror and go, I did that to myself. I did it to myself. And, and, and yet Jesus, in the kindness that he displays to us, he says, I'm not going to throw you out. I'm not going to break you down. I'm not going to be like Cyrus and crush you into mortar. But rather, I will not break a bruised reed. I will not snuff out a smoldering wick. And what he says is, I want you to come to me. And in the midst of coming to me, in the midst of my gentleness and my compassion, I want you to find peace for your souls. And what we find is that in the midst of this this Jesus, this suffering servant that we'll read about in Isaiah chapter 53, he goes, this is what he brings forth. It happens three times in these four verses in the, in the very beginning of Isaiah 42. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now the coastlands don't refer to like places like Virginia Beach and, and Myrtle Beach and places that we might go to the coast, but rather the coastlands are referring in this context to places far, far off. Places Far off, across the river, across the oceans. We're talking about the nations coming to understand who Jesus is and and the beauty of his gospel and the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that through your name, through your line, you will be a blessing to all the nations. And so when we see coastlands or nations, we're talking about mission you know fulfillment. Mission broadcast is what we're seeing. And yet this idea of justice, the idea of justice is coming. And, and and we see this, um, and and I love this. There's actually a Puritan book called "The Bruised Reed" by name named Richard Sibbs. And Richard Sibbs says this about the broken um, Jesus binding up the brokenhearted. He says this. He says, "As a mother is tenderest toward the most diseased and weakest child, so does Christ most mercifully incline to the weakest." Likewise, he puts an instinct into the weakest things to rely upon something stronger than themselves for support. The vine steadies itself upon the elm, and the weakest creatures often have the strongest shelters. The consciousness of the church's weakest we, the consciousness of the church's weakness makes her willing to lean on her beloved and to hide herself under his wing there's this sense in which you know, we who are broken hearted, we who are broken because of our sin, we who are needy will lean more heavily upon Jesus when we understand the depths of our sinfulness and the magnitude of His mercy and grace. I mean, We see this you know, working itself out in the person of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 7, you know, when a woman uh, of the world comes to Him, and she wipes his feet with with tears and wipes them with her hair, and then he anoints his feet with with oil you know with costly perfume and and he does that and Jesus allows it to happen he doesn't say, you know get away from me, you woman of the world, get away from me you you sinful woman, you prostitute, but he allows and he actually in the in the midst of that encounter he says, "You know go forth and sin no more, your sins are forgiven you know, he doesn't he doesn't you know, crush her spirit. Or you read about that in, in Mark chapter 1, one of the first miracles in Mark, when, when a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. You know, that's the idea of, you know, Jesus bringing forth justice and, and his gentleness. You know, the idea of justice. I was... You know, a lot of times in the church and in the world, we have to you know, define our terms. And the idea of justice is the maintenance or administration of what is just, especially by the impartial. Now, that doesn't help us when we think about, you know, uh, we should not define something with the term in it. But the idea of justice is this idea of, of what is righteous, what is lawful, what is deserved, what is proper, what is reasonable. That is what is Just. And when Jesus comes, he brings justice to bear, not only for for us, but he will eventually bring justice to bear for all the nations. What is right from wrong? And he does it with great gentleness. And we see that in the Gospels. Ray Ortland says this about injustice. He says, and, and we see that, right? Like, we see injustice every day. We see injustice around us every day. We see people who are abused. We see people who are taken advantage of. And, and our hearts should cry out, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And if if you look around the world and you don't see injustice, you might have a compassion problem in your heart. Okay? So, you know, I'm saying that to you as much as I am to myself. Like, as we look around and we see the brokenness, I mean, how, how many of us uh, sometimes will see somebody who is uh, maybe... Even homeless, and the first thing we say think about is what did this person do to result in homelessness, as opposed to thinking how can I help, or is there any way that is there any helping agency that might be able to help this person? I mean, think about this. Like, what? I don't have a bracelet to say what would Jesus do, but are, are we thinking about these issues? Are we thinking about justice and injustice in our communities? Ray Ortlund says this about the idea of justice. He says, Injustice is more than a political dysfunction. Although it is political dysfunction. Uh, Anyway, Injustice is more than a political dysfunction. It is a spiritual evil, a denial of God. And by now, the mess we've made is so far advanced, so systemic, so overwhelming, it's beyond our powers of correction. Should we work for a better society? Yes, absolutely. God tells us to in, in, in Amos. But at the same time, let's have the humility to face the facts. In the whole sorry length of human history, we have failed to assemble even one human society as we ourselves would really like it to be. Yes, there are flashes of brilliance here and and there, but they never last. Why? Our social constructs are fundamentally unjust. It is wrong when children are begging on the streets. It is wrong when old people are shivering in the cold. It is wrong when people have only filthy water to drink and sickening food to eat. But the more we try to force our societies into a more human shape by our own schemes, the worse it gets. Because every human plan for salvation unwittingly asserts our own idolatrous (laughs) self-idealization. Don't we see that? That last line, the worse it gets through our own efforts because every human plan for salvation unwittingly asserts our own idolatrous self-idealization. There is a sense in which Jesus is the one who will bring real justice to bear. And if we want to bring real justice to bear, let's get behind Jesus and His plan for the people and for the nations. That's what we're called to do as the people of God. And when people are broken, we don't crush them. When people are hurting, we don't discard them. We love them as best we can. And and, and I'm I'm telling you, I'm preaching to myself right here, okay? Because I don't know about you, but in in the course of my life, I have been inundated with a healthy cynicism about the world. And the gospel should undo that cynicism and make me more compassionate. And make me more loving, and, and I want you to see this as well—that Jesus is given as our new covenant. Like, notice what it says in as, as we continue working down in verse six. I am the Lord; I have called you in righteousness. Now, this is this is um, the Lord God speaking to His servant, speaking about Jesus in verse six. I am the Lord; I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. Now, there's this idea that Jesus will be a covenant. A covenant for the nations. Now, we see this in in several different places in, in in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 54, it says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. That there's this covenant of peace, this new covenant of peace that we see. And we see that God is a covenant making God, a covenant keeping God. But we see the, the Adamic covenant with Adam. We see the Mosaic covenant with Moses. We see uh, Before that, we see the Noahic covenant uh, with the rainbow. Um, we see the, the Mosaic covenant. We see the Davidic covenant, the kingship of David. And yet this new covenant is, is meant to, to also, like what will happen when the Messiah comes in Jeremiah chapter 31. Um, it says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And that is this new covenant. This new covenant that is you know, prophesied by Jeremiah and Isaiah. But also in Ezekiel chapter 16, it says, Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. There's this there's this idea that, that the Lord Jesus will be himself a new covenant covenant. For us Now, I, I wanted to, to read this for you because, you know, when we think about this, I think that we oftentimes think about the law and the gospel. And I have um, a, just a little article. It's a one-sheet article. It's, it's out on the table if you want to pick one up. I have maybe 35, 40 copies of it. But it's, what is the difference between the law and the gospel? You know, the law, meaning the, the Mosaic covenant is given to us, and how does Jesus juxtapose and contrast to this, to the, this new covenant compared to that? And it, here's what it says. The law is that which demands of us, um, while the gospel is the good news that in Jesus Christ God freely and graciously gives us everything which He demands of us under the law. The content of the law is that which God revealed first to Adam and Eden and then published in the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments were written down on two tablets of stone and given to the people of God. The gospel, on the other hand, is the content of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. The revelation of this gospel begins in Genesis 3.15 when God promises to rescue Adam from the curse and to crush Satan under the heel of a redeemer and culminates in God's promise that no longer will there be any curse. The law is what God commands us, commands of us, right? So that's the law. When the Mosaic law is given, it's what God commands of us. The gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. The law says do. The gospel tells us it is done in Christ. He also says this uh, about the law. He summarizes this. This is so good. And that's why I copied the article. And that's why there's a bunch of them on a table out there. Take one, read it. It's only two pages. It's really helpful. The law, meaning the Mosaic law and what we read, the law is indeed holy, righteous, and good. It always is, right? The law of God is holy, righteous, and good. But because we are sinful, when the law is preached to us, we are incited to even greater levels of sin. But once we trust in Jesus Christ and are united to Him through faith, we will struggle with our sins. We will realize that we have failed to keep God's commandments. And suddenly, we will find ourselves desiring to obey the law. The law does not change Once we are justified, or once we come to faith in Jesus, once we understand that He is the new covenant, rather, our relationship to the law changes. Before we were Christ, the law condemns us because we cannot keep it. You got it? So the law condemns you because you are not following it. But, but suddenly we come alive to the commandments of God, which now reveal to us the will of God and what we may do to please Him. So this new covenant is is put in this way. Is the Old Testament, the law condemns us because we see the law, we recognize that we don't follow the law, and we are condemned. But the New Covenant in Christ shows us the law. It shows us that Jesus has met all the requirements of the law, and by believing and trusting in Him, now the law becomes something that is a delight to us, something that we want to follow because we want to please our Father. It goes from being something that condemns us to something that guides and directs our steps. Um, That article is written by a man named Kim Riddlebarger. I think he was probably one of Blake's professors um, at Westminster Seminary. It's really, really helpful. But but that's the nature of this new covenant that we have, this new covenant. And and Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, when Jesus comes in and and he came to Nazareth when he had been brought up, And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Jesus reads the scripture and says, Yeah, that's about me. I'm going to sit down now. You guys got any questions? Any issues? I am the new covenant. When we think about Jesus, and here's what he does there are these beautiful sections in Isaiah chapter forty-two because it says, "This I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison who sit in darkness." Now, what does that prison mean? Now, that prison is not um, a literal prison as much as it is a prison of their own sinfulness. You know that these people are literally living in holes, as, as it says later on. But but what we find is that when Jesus comes. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame leap for joy. And spiritually, that's what happens when we understand what Jesus has done for us. Those of us who are spiritually crippled, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, all of a sudden we can hear, we can see, we can dance, we can, we can even sing because we know what is true. We know that he brings true justice. In, in verse 16, um, we see this again. He goes, and I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. What a beautiful passage it is, because I want to tell you that you can be blind and get around today, okay? You ever see blind people? They, they, They never rearrange their furniture. Your blind people don't. Because once a blind person actually knows where everything is in their house how many steps it is to the bathroom how many steps it is how high the plates are where the, everything is it, it says that i'm blind but i can figure it out right if i'm blind i can wander around my house and actually figure out what's going on but what it says is notice what it says in verse 16 i will lead the blind in a way they do not know now how can a blind person be led in a way that they do not know You take them by the hand, you carry them, you guide them, and you direct them. One of the things that happened to me when I was a youth pastor in Kansas is uh, we went to a a camp called Camp Barnabas, and we would always go, uh, and our students, our senior high students were paired up one-to-one with students who were both blind and deaf and had a variety of physical ailments that related to being vision impaired and deaf. Now they had other weeks, but we went to blind and deaf week. And I was paired up, the one week I went, I was paired up with a boy who had about 10% sight. Uh, and so I, I basically had to take him wherever he needed to go. And I learned very quickly that he was, not, um, he was not accustomed to the camp life. And I'm not, I don't know if you know this, I'm not a seeing blind eye dog, you know, like, so I'm not used to like leading somebody around, right? And so I, I'm, I'm telling him, okay, it's clear. Well, what I didn't tell him was that we were going uphill or going downhill, you know, and so he begins to stumble and he's like, Well, can you tell me if it's uphill or not? And I'm like, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, like I just, I saw it. It looked clear. It was a field. It was going gradually uphill. I thought it would be easy. Or if it's, it's something going downhill. So what I had to do was he would take me by the arm and he had like a little staff that he would go around and, and that would help him. But he knew that if he had my arm, that I could guide him to and from where we were going to go. Now, in this passage, it says that, yes, there are blind people, they're spiritually blind, and I will literally take them by the arm and I will guide them. I will direct their steps. Because a lot of times in in the pride, and and this is against pride, really, it's saying that many blind people know the way they're supposed to go. Now, when we think about that spiritually, how many people do you encounter who feel like, well, I'm good, right? I don't need Jesus. I don't need Jesus to save me from my sins. I don't need any kind of atonement of my sins. I don't need Jesus to reconcile me to God the Father. I know, my, I know the way that I'm supposed to go. Those people are blind people, and they're, and they're wandering in their paths of their own pride, and yet we are called as believers to lead and guide them as best we can to the foot of the cross. That's what we're called to do in compassion and love towards them. Now, Sometimes blind people have sticks, and they end up hitting us. You know, And that's not very pleasant. And yet we're, we are called to, to go to them lovingly and help them. And, and I love verse 16 because it says, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. And then here's, here's what he does. And in the midst of leading them to Jesus, in the midst of leading them to the Messiah, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. I do not forsake them. I mean, that is a wonderful Picture of the gospel for us that the Lord will not forsake those who are blind and He will guide them and direct them. Now, let me let me keep going here because I I got something else to say. You know, Jesus is the light for the nations, and we we see that. You know, it's He's He's the light for the nations. We we see this this idea that the coastlands will sing. You know, in verse ten, sing to the Lord a new song; his praise from the end of the earth. Who go down to the sea? Now, this from verses ten through thirteen, it's all talking about far off people, people who are not your know, national Jews. You know, these are people who go down to the coastlands and, and these people are lifting up their voices. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voices. The villages that Kedar inhabits. The, you know, the Kadar are the dark ones, the, the sons of Ishmael, the desert wanderers, the, the Bedouin tribes. And these are people who do not have a home and yet these are people who are now singing because Yahweh has put a new song in their heart. How does he do that? And he does it through sending his messenger, Jesus. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Now the Selah, this is traditionally the Edomites, the sons of Esau. These are distant cousins of the the people of Judah and Israel. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. What that's saying is that the people of Kadar and the people of Selah have so been impacted by the message of the gospel that they become missionaries to those around them. So that no longer is it just you know the Lord, but now it's, it's this multiplication that's happening all around. And it's these people who are coming in saying, yes, trust in the Lord. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. I mean, that's sort of this idea of getting you know, excited about the proclamation of the good news and really the proclamation that justice will go forth and there will be equity and righteousness. But I got to show you this in Isaiah chapter 42, 18, because it's sad. It's sad. I want you to see in verse 42, 18, here's what it says It says, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Now, that you there, you deaf and you blind, that is actually referring to you plural. That is referring to the nations. Hear, you deaf nations, and look, you blind nations, that you may see. And who are they supposed to be looking at? The nations at this point should be looking at the people of God. But what do the people of God look like? Here's what they look like in verse 19. Who is blind but my servant? or deaf as my messenger whom I send. Essentially what God is saying about the people of Judah in the midst of this, and, and this is the messenger is relating back to Isaiah 41. It's saying, this is the people of Israel. You know, who is blind as my dedicated one or blind as the servant of the Lord. And this is talking about the people of God, that the people of God cannot be those who guide and direct the, the nations who are blind because they themselves are blind themselves. They see many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this people is, people is a plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prison. So here's the idea. And this is referring to the people of God. And this has direct influence and in, in, in application for us today. You know, do we hear the law of the Lord and the precepts of God but not observe them? Do we read the commandments of God and discard them and thus become as blind as the nations that we are supposed to lead to Christ? You're at the very end of this, this section, that says this, um, It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. And what that is referring to is that in the midst of the people of God who have rejected, and, and, and really it's this, they've discarded, abandoned, ignored, refused, cut loose the anchor of their souls, they've abdicated the responsibility, and they've lessened the meaning of the commandments of God. And they said, we're not going to do it, because we don't like it. We like other gods, we like other things, we think we know better, so we're going to discard, ignore, and run away from the commands of God. And they did not take it to heart, even though the Lord in his providence and in his mercy actually set affliction and difficulty so that they would lean upon him, but they remained blind and they would not relent and they would not repent. Okay, I got to tell you this story. I got to tell you this story. So I did a wedding last week, right? I did a wedding last week and, um, and, I, and I did this wedding and, and we're going to the, through the vow section of the wedding, right? And I'd already met uh, with this couple and I talked to them about their vows. You know, to love and cherish and blah, 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 blah. You know, you guys all get it, right? Well, I get to, you know, the husband goes through his vows. And I say, hey, do you? Yep, I do. And he goes through the vows. Does them perfectly, right? He's a little teary-eyed. You know, it's all right. He'll man up later. You know, but anyway, you know, um, and and then I get to to, to the wife. Uh, And we've talked about this and we talked about these. And I I always do traditional vows. By the way, I always think people should do traditional vows um, because traditional vows are just better. Okay, uh, you're, you're not that poetic. You just can't do it. All right, so traditional vows. So we're working through the traditional vows, and I and I get to the and I'm in the ceremony, and and, and there's one word. There's one word that's different between the man, man's vows and the woman's vows. It's love, cherish, and obey. Love, cherish, and obey. It's love, cherish for the man. It's love, cherish and obey. And and I go through the vows, and we'd already talked about this. I talked about like look, I know that it says obey. But it's supposed to be you obey like he dies for you. This is a picture of the church. This is a picture of the church and Jesus Christ. This is a picture where Jesus literally dies for you. And you can obey Jesus, and, is, and obedience to his commands are not burdensome um, because you know that they are for you and he has died for you. And so it's not hard for you to say obey. It's not hard when you see your husband loving you like Jesus loved the church. She was like, uh huh. We're in the ceremony. I'm not kidding. We're in the ceremony, and I say, "Love, cherish, and obey." And she says, "Love, cherish, and sometimes obey." I said, "No, you didn't." I looked at her and I said, "We're going to try this again. We're going to try it again." Because, by the way, I, I, my house—you know—they were getting married in Windsor Castle. I'm like a block away from my house. I can walk home, you know. Like, I, I, and I said, "Love, cherish, and obey." And she went. Oh, cherish and obey. You know, and then, and then we, got, we got through the rest of the ceremony, right? But, but, but here's what's going on with the people of God. When God gives us commandments, I think we look at them and we say, sometimes obey. Sometimes I'll obey them. I'll obey them when I want to obey them. I'll obey them when they're convenient. I'll obey them when they, con- when they, they dovetail with what I think is right from wrong. And we, like that bride, you know, and, 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 you know, we just say, sometimes obey. Sometimes. And when that happens, when that happens, the salt loses its saltiness. Because the people of God are meant to preserve the world. Yeah, the, um, let, me, let me just read this. Um, the greatest miracle in the universe is not when God hung the planet in space. The greatest miracle in the universe is when God transforms a compulsive idolater into a glad worshiper of himself alone. That's a miracle we urgently need to love the giver more than his gifts to see in God, our only ultimate delight and every other joy he gives as just one more reason to glorify and enjoy him. That way we don't have to cling selfishly to his gifts. If he takes them away, we're not devastated because we have him. That is worship to be so rich in Christ, so filled with a sense of privilege that we may actually become happy on God's terms. You know, I I think about that and I think about myself. I I look back at this and I think about application. Like, has the salt lost its saltiness in the midst of the people of God? Do we just want to obey when it's convenient? And when we do that, when we only want to obey when it's convenient, when when we want to dismiss what he says about taking care of the poor, you know, loving people who who are needy. When 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 we discard the unborn, when we do those things, we have lost our saltiness, and we are like blind people. And blind people can't lead other blind people. There's a couple of points of application um, here. Um, the first is is this, you know. Do we love all the commands of God and do we, do we take every one of them? Do we take the, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? Do we do that? Secondly, when I think about Jesus and how compassionate he is, are, are we growing in our compassion for other people? Are we growing in our love for those around us? Again, I, I heard this in college and I think this is an, just such an appropriate metaphor is that our love for those around us should be growing like a huge picture window, ever-expanding. Our love should be growing and growing and growing for the nations, for the world, for our neighbors. And yet our convictions, our, our, our growing theology, our understanding of the gospel should be narrowing like a razor-sharp. Our convictions should narrow to a razor-sharp's edge. A growing love and a razor-sharp conviction. But be very wary where your love is shrinking and your, or where your convictions are broadening. That is a dangerous place to be. The, the other thought I have with regard to this passage is, again, am I growing in gentleness and compassion as the Lord Jesus? Here's, here's a barometer. I, I met a few people recently, um, and, and they say, you know, I just don't like children. And I'm like, ooh, I guess children don't like you either. You know, I mean, that's pretty much how it works out usually, you know. But but if you don't like children, you might have to think about your compassion gauge a little bit, right? How about this one? Um, if you don't like, uh, uh, but not everybody, you know, like maybe you're not gifted with children. I get it, right? Not everybody's gifted with children. Are children annoying? Absolutely, right? You go ask any new mom. You know, but there's, there's great, they love children. I mean, children are wonderful, right? We, we should love them. And, and by the way, Jesus said, let all the little children come to me. So if we're being like Jesus, we should love children, right? How about this one? You know, animals. Do you love animals? And I, I mean good animals, like dogs, right? You know, like, if you love dogs, you know, like that's, that's showing compassion and gentleness. You know, like are we growing? Are we growing in compassion and gentleness, right? You know, or do you, do you hold everything off? You know, like I would say that you know many of us need to grow in compassion and love for each other. Jonathan Edwards, let me close with this quote. Jonathan Edwards says this He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. May we find great joy in pursuing God. May we find great compassion and gentleness, and may we be the salt that we are called to be. Would you pray with me? Father, help us, Lord. Help us to be who You have called us to be. Help us to follow You in faithfulness, in truth. And Father, we pray, Lord, that as we we sing, Father, You would remind us that we are saved, that we were once blind and deaf and imprisoned because of our own sin. But Father, You have set the captives free. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would have the compassion of Jesus to those who do not or who are not free themselves. Father, may we give the key of the gospel to those who are imprisoned. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.